Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Square Waves FM podcast, our inaugural podcast, numero uno. Very glad to have you with us, and thanks for joining. Uh, my name is Brian, and uh, with me today is... Hi, I'm Chris, and uh, I'm going to be Brian's co-host for Square Waves. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, for those just joining, and I suppose that would be 100% of you at this point, uh, we are a couple of enthusiasts of uh, retro hardware, of video games, of... Uh, you know, only the finest things in life. And uh, we are here to share our enthusiasm with you. And, of course, we uh, invite you to share yours with us as well. Oh, and yeah. as, as, as an aside, I just realized that I meant to make a Twitter thing for us, and I totally didn't. <laughs> oh, no biggie. Um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely somebody who's been kind of obsessed with retro stuff. Even Even when I was a kid, I was into old computers and, you know, computers that were at least 10 years, you know, behind the times at the time. So it's not much of a change for me now to appreciate um, old games. And especially that, um, I, you know, I don't like them for posterity's sake. I think they're, they're just fantastic to play now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really something, well, I guess, twofold. Number one, how well the old games hold up. And number two, I guess how uh, somewhat disappointing it is that the medium hasn't really uh, uh, advanced or... Uh, evolved much more than it has, but uh, it's a yeah. young medium during exciting times, and uh, I guess the medium itself is changing as quickly as the technology that's it's running on, so there's kind of a lot of push and pull yeah. between those two factors. absolutely. And, and you know, the audience is changing, too. You know, when I was a kid, I was willing to kind of play anything to, um, you know, to keep myself occupied, and now I think gamers have become a lot more conscientious and articulate about what they demand out of the game, what they want out of the game. And, um, you know, much more demanding than I was as a, you know, a five or 10 year old. It's true. Well, uh, I believe that's true on one hand and on the other hand, um, it's become more mainstream and homogenized and people I think are, that's true. Are a little bit less adventurous as they used to be. And, uh, so are publishers. And so we don't always see the same creativity and, uh, exploration of the medium. Oh, uh, totally. And, and that's one of the things I'm hoping we get to highlight is kind of all of the, you know, fairly obscure stuff that people may have not have played or people, you know, actively celebrate um, that did take some pretty serious creative risks back in the day. And I think, you know, if people actually played them now would be kind of shocked at how, you know, for instance, that they don't cleanly fit into one genre or another. Or, you know, um, just today I was ta- telling a, a buddy of mine about <laughs> you, you might get a kick out of this. Um, we were having breakfast together a couple of hours ago, and I said, "Have you played Portal?" And he's like, uh, "Yeah." And I said, "No, no, 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 not not like the you know the new puzzly 3D FPS Portal. I mean the original Portal." And he's like, "What are you talking about?" And we, we had this really funny conversation about this you know this very unknown Activision game from I think 1987 or 88 um, that called Portal. I can't believe Activision hasn't sued the pants off of Valve for this, for using the same title, um, which is an amazing uh, science fiction adventure game that no one ever talks about or even, as far as I know, has even played, uh, written by, a, you know, as far as I know, an award-winning uh, science fiction author. Hmm. I'm yeah. quite certain I've seen the, the uh, 
cover image for it. If not on Moby Games, then maybe on abandonia.com or something like that. But uh, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly where I heard about it. Um, was was on Abandonia, and um, and I think I might even have heard about it years earlier on Home of the Underdogs. Um, and you know, I guess for our listeners, those are two sites that are um, you know featured well well centered in the abandonware world. Um, you can go and download some classic games that you know may have been unappreciated uh, today or in the day. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly that'll be a topic for uh, a podcast in the not so distant future of acquiring mm-hmm. our favorite old stuff. Um, yeah, we have a I guess I suppose a related but uh, not exactly on that ball uh, topic for today. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear what you've been playing lately. Uh, I unpre- very predictably have been playing some old classics. Um, I kind of went back to the drawing board and thought, okay, well, you know, um, part of what I do involves uh, uh, working on old-school style adventure games, so I thought I should play some of the classics and kind of get a feel for, um, you know, what used to be great design back in the 80s and 90s. So I've been playing Monkey Island 1, um, the original, not the special edition remake, and uh, Monkey Island 2... Um, I ended up playing both games at the same time because I got really, really stuck in Monkey Island 1. And unless you know the solution to some of these puzzles, I'm going to be stuck there forever because I don't cheat. I don't think um, I've ever finished those for the same reason. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're chastised for that. I'm, not, I'm sure. Oh, I, I, I totally, I totally have a lot of compassion for that because when I was a kid and we got Monkey Island 2, um, me and my sister bought it together. I think it was one of the first games I had ever bought for my. Um, my old PC, um, I think we we played the game for two or three years straight and never finished it. And, you know, we would, you know, restart it or, you know, quit on it every few months. And we never got to the end until I think I was old enough to download a walkthrough off the Internet and uh, and actually finish the damn thing with the walkthrough. Um, some of the puzzles are actually pretty abuse. Um, you know, I guess maybe we're gonna, I'm going to end up getting some flack for that from um, listeners, but I actually don't think that it is um, the be-all and end-all of adventure game design that it's cracked up to be. Yeah, me too. And uh, so I've been playing those two, and I've also been playing this fantastic game that I don't know... Um, I'm, I'm assuming people know what Monkey Island 1 and 2 are, so I won't go into a lot of detail about those, but I've been playing uh, Lands of Lore. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, yeah. That was... Was it a sequel or a spiritual successor to Eye of the Beholder? Yeah, it kind of feels like it. it I, I would say it's... I don't really know much about the history there, but it's definitely as if somebody said, let's do Eye of the Beholder, but we're over at Westwood Studios. And so it's a very Westwood-feeling kind of adventure game. And um, and it's a lot more rpg light than... Uh, it's got a lot of... Let's say it's got a lot more adventure elements to it than uh, Eye of the Beholder did, hmm. uh, which, which I kind of saw as much more hardcore, kind of classic traditional gold box D&D adventure uh, RPG. And, it had uh, really spectacular uh, art, as I recall. The monsters were very creative and colorful. Yeah, exactly. And they took a lot of, yeah, definitely a lot of creative risks with their artwork because it, you know, it's just it's just weird artwork. It doesn't quite fit in any kind of traditional D&D world that I can imagine. Um, it's definitely, Lands of Lore is definitely a world of its own in terms of, I will. I won't even call it high fantasy. I don't quite know what it is, um, and it definitely blurs genres in terms of most of the time you're just hacking and slashing away at stuff, um, uh, the beholder style, 
and then you hit these really cool puzzles where you're, you know, solving classic adventure game puzzles in, you know, some sort of maze or uh, in the forest you're pick, you're searching out items to unlock certain doors or certain gateways. And I was really impressed. And the other thing it has going on inside is it has a fantastic um, voiceovers and soundtrack. Um, the the CD-ROM edition has a, an amazing uh, voiceover uh, for each of the characters. Um, you kind of assume the same kind of uh, view as Eye of the Beholder, where you have your three character portraits or four character portraits at the bottom. Um, and the character portraits are animated, so I just, each time they talk, they kind of animate their faces moving. And I really thought, you know, for an early 90s adventure game, they did an amazing job of picking uh, voice actors for it. Hmm. That is a that is a rare benefit for that time. Usually they were content to bring, like, a dictaphone to the programmer's desk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I was thinking of, you know, um, some of the Sierra adventure games especially. Uh, uh. Yeah, they, they were lucky to be recorded on a wax cylinder in like the accounting uh, accounts receivables basement. Um, by I don't think know, they were lucky to be recorded in any way. They were horrible. Their voiceovers. <laughs> At the same time, I, I remember um, that this. I'm trying not to get too off track. Do you did you ever play King's Quest Five uh, yes. on CD? Oh, not on CD. Thankfully. Oh well. Oh, nice. So you had the benefit of. Um, of uh, playing it without the voiceovers. Yes, yes, I believe Cedric the Owl is pretty infamous for his uh, grating falsetto. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, I was thinking of our dear friend Francisco Gonzalez, and he'd uh-huh. be out of a job if it wasn't for Cedric. <laughs> 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 That's hands down the best imitation I've ever heard of Cedric in my uh-huh. whole life. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a great voice But it's funny, like... What's that story? Uh, Francisco is a great voice actor. Oh, yeah, he's terrific. And, and, and I love, you know, my partner and I were playing uh, 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 one of the uh, Agedai games the other day, and um, my partner pointed out, it's like, isn't that Francisco's voice? I'm like, that, in fact, is his voice. I'm like, that's amazing that you picked it out. And uh, he's he's got just a, a great kind of gritty voice that he gives to one of the one of the characters in the Blackwell series. So, mm. um, yeah. So anyway, not to get too off track. Um, I love King's Quest V because, honestly, as a kid, I didn't think there was anything wrong with the voiceovers. Um, you know, as an adult, I come back and think, "Oh man, those are so grating." But as a kid, you know, I I actually thought that it wasn't so bad. It felt very cartoonish, um, and you know, Graham's voice wasn't terrible. I honestly did. Cedric did not bother me at all as a kid. Um, it was only when I got older I realized, like, oh, man, you know, obviously most of these people are not professional voice actors. And, you know, in terms of voicing the lines, they're basically just, you know, kind of um, kind of just, like, really poorly stereotyped. I was thinking of um, this one, there's this one character you meet, he's a gypsy, and he's blocking access to the gypsy wagon. And uh, he says, you know, it will cost you one gold coin to see Madame Mushka. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I was thinking, I'm like, this sounds like a really bad, you know, guy trying to imitate a Russian who's trying to imitate an Albanian who's imitating a Turkish guy. And, <laughs> you know, and I always thought, you know, if anything, all of those old voice actor games had a, had a lot of that happening where, you know, because the person's not a voice actor, they've kind of just said, well, this is what a gypsy must sound like, even though I've never heard one or seen one before. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, um, 
Lord does, for some reason, a spectacular job of of being both comic bookish, but at the same time, whoever does the voice uh, voices and dialogue for those games really just said they, you feel like they bought into the world. They bought into the fantasy world, and they did a really good job of imagining what these voices might sound like. And uh, so, yeah, I unfortunately with Landvalor, I hit a bug. I'm using a really, really, really old port of Scum VM um, mm-hmm. that runs on an old device. And uh, <laughs> the version of Scum VM, the last version for this device, doesn't actually work. Um, it breaks support for Lands of War, so I got through, I want to say, about 80% of the game. I'm out in some swamp. Um, past, actually, I'm past the swamps. Um, but basically there's a part where you need to open this magically blocked gateway and I cannot use the object on a magically blocked gateway because the uh, the game doesn't know how to process the click logic for it. What a shame. Um, it's, it's like horrible. I, I it, Like for the first time in 20 years, I got that exact feeling I had when I was uh, 14, 15 years old playing Quest for Glory 4 when I hit... Yeah, a game breaker at the end of Quest for Glory 4, and I could never finish that game. Oh, I didn't finish that one either, even though it's my favorite of the series. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic, and I was really getting into it. And it was the same thing. I, I hit this I hit this hilarious bug. I think it was a timer or bug related to the 486 architecture um, that I was playing on. Um, basically, if you try to use this oil on a hinge in the castle door to prevent the hinge from squeaking when you open the door, the whole game would completely lock out. Um, (laughs) So I don't know if it made me bitter or something, but I I remember replaying. I actually thought when I was a kid that maybe what I needed to do was replay the whole game from the start and it would somehow fix that. Um, So I remember replaying all of Quest for Glory 4 like three or four times, and every time it would lock up in the exact same spot. Oh, man. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's that's mostly what I've been playing. What What have you had a chance to play lately? Uh, well, I won't go too far back in time. I just came uh, back to work from a two-week vacation over the new, new year. So uh, my... Uh, yeah, happy new year, by the way. <laughs> oh, same to you. Thank you very much. And to you, fair listeners. Um, so uh, we, we had what is uh, so uh, grossly known as a staycation, which, uh, <laughs> which uh, afforded me lots and lots of time to play a whole huge variety of games. Um, the ones that stood out were I replayed uh, Francisco Gonzalez's a new adventure game, A Golden Wake, which is a Wedgedi title. Um, oh, fantastic. It was great. I was a beta tester on that game and uh, played it again for the first time since it had its commercial release, and I was so impressed with how fundamental some of the changes were to the story and the pacing and the balance. He really took the beta tester's uh, feedback to heart and made it oh, into more of a cohesive thing. It was great. So it was oh, that's amazing! I didn't realize uh, that that the game had changed fundamentally uh, since the since it went into beta. Maybe fundamentally is the wrong word, but there are some really substantial changes. Some of them required new voiceovers, and uh, some of them had oh, wow. new mechanics and rejiggered puzzles. It was uh, he, he took it very seriously. It's uh, great to see how committed he is to uh, his polished product. So I had as good that's a time amazing. with that as ever. Oh, that's that. I I'm so glad to hear that. I think the the last version I played of it was a fairly late alpha before it even went into beta. So I'm, I'm guessing, you know, the next time I get to the chance to hop in there and play it, um, it's going to be quite a different experience. Well, if you play it to conclusion, you'll find that both you and I are graciously thanked in the credits. Oh, that's so cool. Pretty cool. I know. I love seeing my own Oh, game. that's amazing. I didn't know that. I didn't even think to check. That's awesome. Awfully gracious of the guy. 
Uh, he's such a sweetheart. Uh-huh. So what else? Oh, I was extremely surprised to have uh, not only played, but thoroughly enjoyed two remakes of classic first-person shooters. Not really remakes, so much oh. as, like, I don't know, you, I, like, they're direct predecessors and sort of remakes and sort of continuations. Um, gotcha. The, the first one is Shadow Warrior. Did you play that one? You know what's funny? I remember Shadow Warrior's box perfectly, but I had so many people warn me away from playing it at the time that I I, I never picked it up. I wasn't the, the biggest fan of the original. It was like it's a first it's a first person shooter game, but uh, the kind of the primary weapon you use is this katana blade. Yes. So it was in the build engine, which was uh, what Duke 3D Duke Nukem 3D was uh, built in, um, right? Which is a terrific engine, um, but it was just kind of a with the exception of like a, a a brazenly uh, racist, stereotypical Japanese protagonist. Right, with right. Broken English and a very thick accent. Um, it was right. kind of an average uh, first-person shooter. It had nice graphics and it had some interesting okay. puzzles with, like a you know, a, a remote-controlled car with a bomb strapped to it. And you have to control that to go open a door somewhere. But otherwise, I didn't exactly have the fondest memories of it. But uh, okay, so so it was it was a three D was it a three D realms game or was it done by somebody outside of uh engine company. I don't recall, but I think it actually was a 3D Realms game. Okay, so it's kind of a weird kind of like um, side follow-up to Duke Nukem. I believe so, yeah. Just another another IP to extend the huh. life of their engine, I suppose. Yeah, so, I was going to say, because it never got any sequels, as far as I knew. Yeah, that's right. Well, not to, at least not until this uh, successor. Um, wow, so, so tell me about it. Yeah, I don't recall who the developer is offhand. I should have written it down, but... Um, it has a really gorgeous engine. Um, it has uh, cutscenes with uh, you know first person uh, speech and uh, you know you you see through the eyes of like the main actor. So that's right. not really something you'd expect to enjoy. But the writing is actually kind of sharp and witty and very sarcastic and foul mouthed. And it's ordinarily the kind of thing that I would kind of roll my eyes at. But it was funny and clever enough to have uh, hooked me in a little bit. Um, that's interesting. So did they stay with the same protagonist in the sequel? He, yeah, he has the same name, but thankfully okay. he has a, a, a much more subdued accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the accent was kind of famous for being so over-the-top ridiculous that nobody could even take its racism seriously. I think so, I think so. I know it's, it's never been a series that takes itself seriously. The sequel uh, is no different, but uh, it has gotcha. really fun swordplay, and it's still kind of a serious Sam-style kill lots and lots of enemies, but uh, yep. good variety, and like it has special moves now, and uh, progression with uh, upgrade trees and stuff like that, so I'm having cool. a surprisingly good time with it, and I, I read a, shot, a rock, paper, shotgun write-up of it, and they were pleasantly surprised with it as well, so it just kind wow. of came out of left field. You didn't expect too much from... So yeah, I was just going to say I had heard nothing about it for the last two years. That's yeah, amazing. I don't know. I don't know how successful it might have been, but it deserves more than it got. Oh, that's great! Did it maintain kind of any of the? I don't. I, I hesitate to call them adventure elements, but um, you know, Duke Nukem and I guess Shadow Warrior Two probably they both had kind of this slightly more adventure kind of feel to them than, for instance, uh, any of the It Software games, which were just all out kill fest. Um, um, did they maintain any kind of puzzle stuff, or was it mostly? Is it mostly just a kill fest now? Uh, they, the original was a little bit more puzzly, 
um, okay. as was kind of the style of uh, first-person shooters at the time. You know, they were like yeah. complicated mazes, and you had to you had to kind of change the world to to proceed right. through a door. Sometimes, exactly. Uh, yeah, this one not so much. Um, there are optional things that you can pick up, and that's rewards for people who explore a whole bunch. And sometimes I'm motivated okay. to check those out, and sometimes not. It's definitely more linear, but it's not as linear as the average first-person shooter nowadays. Very cool. So they're actually they try to do something new with it. They do. So it's a game that I that I wholeheartedly recommend. I was super skeptical, but it was recently the uh, Steam Winter Sale, and uh, I have no willpower whatsoever to resist the charms of a good Steam sale. So that was That's one awesome. that I picked so, up with no So you grabbed that one from the Steam sale too? Cool. I did. It was like four bucks or something, three seventy five. It was very money, very well spent. That's very very cool. Um, mm-hmm. So are you done? Are you done with it now, or are you um, still playing it through? I am still playing through it. I've kind of been. You know, uh, kicking at it and taking a break from it, and it's every bit as enjoyable when I come back to it. It's kind of samey throughout, so you yeah. can kind of leave it for a while and come back to it and know where you were and know what's left to do. So, gotcha. I'm, uh, I'll get all the way through it, no doubt. That's awesome. Is there a is there like a kind of a storyline that plays through uh, as as you advance through the game, or is it mostly? I, guess so. uh, I think the storyline okay. is get the big magic sword. That's kind of the your objective at the beginning, <laughs> and you almost have it, but then it. it eludes you and you're you're chasing after it. That's gotcha. about the long and the short of it. That's very funny. Um, that reminds me a little bit of the... Do you remember the... Uh, I don't want to use the word failure, but the Ion Storm game Daikatana? Oh, I know of it. I own it, in fact, from GOG. I don't think I put more than, like, 45 seconds into it. That's basically where I am with it, too. Um, <laughs> but basically, that's the, yeah, that's the limits of the storyline with Daikatana, which was, you know, this game that was supposed to be this super amazing, um, you know, uh, portal world universe crossing storyline. But in, in the end, it ended up becoming this, yeah, get the Daikatana sword kind of story. Um, it's funny that, you know, uh, effectively Shadow Warrior, which is mocking that genre, became the same story. Yeah, I guess so. I seem to recall, too, from reading... Was it David Kushner's book, The Masters of Doom? He talks, yes. yes uh, he he talks about how the Daikatana was one of their uh, Dungeons and Dragons weapons. It was like exactly. the most powerful weapon on Earth, and he was acquiring that weapon at all costs, which is what killed all of their years-old characters. That, ah, that's right, yeah. I forgot that's how the story went. They'd played for, what, two or three years, and um, John Romero decided that he was willing to make some sort of pact with the demon to get this Daikatana sword, and in the end, the demon just enslaved all of humanity. That was the end of the game. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of a depressingly <laughs> prophetic story about Ion Storm in the coming years, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly. Poor guy. It's funny, you know, I've read that book three or four times, and I never once made the connection that this is effectively <laughs> the same thing as them selling out to IDOS, and, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, wow, that's, that's quite disturbing. That's right. It's kind of the Icarus story. Yeah, de- de- definitely. Cool. Um, so what else have you been playing? Okay, so, oh, so that was one of the two uh, remake games that I was very pleasantly surprised oh, yeah, right. with. The other one is, I never would have guessed this would be any good whatsoever, Wolfenstein New Order. You're which, kidding me. Which I heard, I, I watched someone play for like two minutes on Twitch, and I'm like, this looks stupid. I'm never going to get this. And then lo and behold, it's on sale. What else am I going to do? I pick it up whether I play it or not. Um, I gave it a try. It's drop dead gorgeous, and oh, the okay, action cool. is fun. But the hugest surprise is how extremely well written this game is. It's like more intelligent and enjoyable than most movies that you would watch. I had that's unbelievable. No expectation of it being 
you know, mentally stimulating in anything but like my most animalistic <laughs> ways. But uh, it was a very, very rewarding story with likable, unique characters and just very clever, well-written dialogue. Very That's unbelievable. Game. So yeah. is it still starring B.J. Blaskowitz? It is indeed. And huh. uh, they they turn him into a person, although he's like a a big beefy ox of a guy, of course. Still, gotcha. but he has some depth to him. He has a whole plot and a story and a progression and lessons oh, learned. So is, is this about his kind of escape from Castle Wolfenstein, or is it a revenge story? Well, have you played any of the other uh, Wolfenstein games in that series? Yeah, I played Wolf 3D, and I want to also, you know, what I played Spear of Destiny, and I'm never sure how exactly Spear of Destiny even fits in, because it seems to be so goddamn identical to Wolf 3D. Yeah, I don't know if that one was canonical or what. I didn't like Spear of Destiny as much as Wolf 3D. Yeah, same here, exactly. I, I just kind of gave it a cursory look and moved on to Wolf. Um, so is it is it kind of following the story arc in that series, or is this a whole new kind of thing? That's a, that's a kind way to to put, put the uh, few screens of text, if any, that you get with story. But um, there were a few other games. There was... Return to Castle Wolfenstein, I think. Oh, right. I want to say that was by Raven or something. I'm not sure who made that. Maybe it was it. Um, yeah. And then there was another one just simply called Wolfenstein, and I don't remember who the developer was for that one. And that was one right. that I bought for cheap and didn't like whatsoever, but kept trying it once or twice and ended up quite enjoying that. But, um, yeah. The series was, wasn't there one of, that was built on the Source engine at some point? I can't remember. That one was... I think that was the Unreal engine. The, the, the oh, it was on, Unreal. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because um, I remember it had a fantastic multiplayer mode. Oh, did it? You'd, I'd have to take your word on it. I'm so not a multiplayer shooter guy, unless it's co-op. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. I derailed you. You were talking about oh, the story. Okay. So um, that series kind of hooks onto the like paranormal cultist sort of imagery that they draw upon a little bit in Wolfenstein okay. 3D. I know there was a Wolfenstein game before that. I hadn't played it. But uh, so Wolf okay. 3D was my first one. And that had like Hitler ghosts shooting magical... Uh, arcane fireballs and stuff at you, and so that was, was something... That, was, hmm? was that the Wolfenstein, like, two-dimensional game that was played with kind of, kind of like, ASCII style? So that was the one that came before Wolfenstein 3D, which I haven't tried, right. but Wolf 3D... I think it was even, just Castle Wolfenstein or something. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, I, I never got it. I, I knew Anatoly on the Dust Nostalgia podcast, which, by the way, is an amazing podcast, uh, to listen to, sure is. Listeners. Um, yeah, he he talks about that briefly. Um, I believe in the episode uh, where he talks with Jim Leonard or Trickster about the evolution of the IBM PC. But um, yeah, um, I just remember it specifically because it's got some interesting um, uh, uses of the PC speaker in it. But I guess we'll talk about that some other time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that in uh, the one I did with him too about uh, music. Um, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, so um, I, I wasn't too familiar with that, but it was in Wolfenstein 3D where they started to have some more of like the occultist uh, imagery. Oh, uh, oh it was in the later funny. levels. It's been quite some time since I played that one. That's a game that holds up surprisingly well, by the way. If you kind of squint your eyes while playing Wolfenstein 3D, it's, it's yeah. scarily modern. I thought it was great. I for for a job I was doing a year ago, um, I had to re- record some screencasts of Wolf 3D. Basically, when you take on Mecha Hitler, and um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, I, I couldn't believe how extraordinarily well balanced uh, it was. It was challenging, but not like absolutely abusive. It was just just difficult to kill Hitler in the or Mecha Hitler in the game. 
And um, I was really blown away. I Unfortunately, I've never actually finished Wolf 3D. I've played... Uh, I played towards the later levels, but at some point when I was, you know, younger, I honestly couldn't, uh, I couldn't keep up with it. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's pretty cool that it still holds up. It's pretty punishing. But, uh, <laughs> so the, the new one anyway, long story short, totally worth your time, totally worth your money. I, uh, have to, I, I'm definitely going to play it again. I just upgraded my PC over the break too, so not before playing the game. So I'll give it another try at some point. That's uh, awesome. Um, last game that I'll mention that was worth mentioning is one called Elite Dangerous. Jeez, I guess that's a remake oh, of a Once Upon a Time game. You're getting to play too, Elite Dangerous. Oh, I am indeed. Well, it's actually uh, out uh, in, uh, it's been re- released to retail now, I guess about a month ago. Um, right. I hadn't pre- pre-ordered it. I didn't really care all that much, but uh, I saw a couple of YouTube videos and it just seemed like awe-inspiringly cool. And indeed it is. It's a very, very cool game. It's like, it's got this same sort of immersion that you would find in, like, Half-Life, where you just never leave the right. eyes of the pilot. And so the whole game is kind of linear real-time, which makes it feel so epic and impactful right. and meaningful, which is very cool. Um, so is, um, because the original Elite, um, I didn't play it much. Um, I played a little bit. It was more of an open-world space exploration game. Mm-hmm. Um, what was is this following the same pattern, or is this kind of a whole new experience? So I never played the original Elite. Actually, I was a Wing Commander kid, and so that was the yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, that was the universe I was most uh, acquainted with. Um, but this Elite Dangerous is indeed just an exploration, open, freeform kind of a game where you can, you know, the progression is whatever you want it to be, the pace is whatever you want it to be. There's no real okay. story or anything that you're compelled to do at any one time. You can trade. Yeah trade materials to make more money, or you can uh, be a bounty hunter and kill people, or you can be an explorer and get paid for your uh, astrological star maps and stuff. Cool. So, Is it multiplayer or single player? Uh, one of the things that they were somewhat lambasted for by the uh, Kickstart, Kickstarter uh, backers was that they right. added very late uh, in production a requirement to have an online connection, an always online connection. Oh, wow. So that made a lot of people angry, and I think they even... I, I don't know whether they gave any refunds, because I think oh, if shit. you do a Kickstarter, then you're kind of investing in, you know, whatever the future right. may hold. Yeah. Or lump okay. it. Um, but uh, it, I very often will see other players uh, flying around and uh, shooting bad guys and stuff. I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, encountered anyone hostile yet, thank goodness. Okay. But uh, taking a quick look at the forums, it sounds like I might be in the minority. There's some <laughs> angry words being thrown about to whoever the guy was in the, in the, the orange ship who was blasting me willy-nilly. Like, up yours, buddy. That's, that, <laughs> there's a few that forums amazing. on that. So it's a yeah, very because, cool game. Very cool game. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard. Are you one of the investors? I, I'm using that word very lightly. Um, in the new uh, Chris Roberts um, Wing Commander game? I'm slipping the name right now. Oh, why am I slipping on the name? Yes, I am. <laughs> cool. Yeah, because I've heard... Star um, on, Yeah, exactly, on Star Citizen. Um, on Joe's uh, UMB cast, uh, he's been talking about that briefly on and on for the last, on and off for the last year and a half. And a lot of people have been making comparisons between uh, Star Citizen and Elite Dangerous in terms of what they were trying to achieve, you know, kind of with the final play experience. Oh, sure, they're, they've got a lot of similarities. Have you uh, have you had a chance to try out any of the builds of Star Citizen? A little bit. They started off with, uh, like, the PvP kind of stuff, where you're in your spaceship right. and shooting other people in their spaceships, and that's always the, the aspect that I'm the least interested in. I, yeah. Uh, I, I, like I said, I love to co-op. I'm not the biggest PvP guy. 
So I've kicked the tires right. a bit. I've uh, tried a few of the tech demos and like I had to clean the slobber off the floor. They were so beautiful. Um, <laughs> and I tried a little bit in the cockpit stuff, but there's a million buttons that I'll have to get used to as there are in Elite as well. So gotcha. I just didn't want to put the time in for such a limited beta. I'll get there. Gotcha. So Elite's in full release and, and that's available on Steam right now? Uh, actually, they uh, are willfully uh, not going on Steam. I don't know if it's because oh, they want wow. more money for themselves or what exactly, but they just sell it from, I think it's EliteDangerous.com or Elite.com, probably EliteDangerous.com. Very so cool. That's I can't wait I picked to it check it out. out. Really, really good one. I'm playing it with my flight stick, which makes all the difference, I think. And uh, I bought a webcam because I found this software called Face track no IR. It's like a free open okay. source face head tracking solution. Um, You're kidding me. For people with a webcam, which is really <laughs> cool. Like as soon as I got that game, th- between that and Euro Truck Simulator, which is a quite a fun one, that and uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator too. I love simulator games. Um, head that's, trackers that's are, are of uh, a lot of value, and so I've always been too cheap yeah. to buy one. So this is a nice. Is the idea with the head tracker that it can shift your camera view when you shift your head? Yeah, exactly. You look left, and then your your pilot looks left as well. And in Elite, it's especially neat because you, whenever you turn your head, you have these two monitors on either side of you, and you can optionally invoke <laughs> those with a button on your joystick. But if you have a head tracker, then all you or like the Oculus VR, all you have to do is kind of look at it, and then it appears, and then your controls automatically start moving. Oh the cursors. my god! It's a I, really I fun little thing. Reminded me a bit of Doom Three, how they uh, how they kind of arrest your controls whenever yeah. into an interface whenever you look at something. Very very clever, quite immersive. That's, that's impressive. I can't, and it seamlessly kind of works with games like Elite. It really does very well, or at least for people that have a more sophisticated, expensive, and reliable head tracking system than this free open source thing with my cheapo $20 webcam. <laughs> That's <laughs> cool. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you played this, or played this or even saw one of these back in the day. This this would be kind of, I would say, early 1990s. What year was Doom released? 93? I think so. I, I, around then. Hmm. Yeah, something around then. Um I remember in shopping malls all over um, all over Canada, um, they would set up these kiosks where you could play Doom, and it was like you know ten bucks for ten minutes or something. Um, but what they had was these VR helmets um, that you could put on to play Doom with. And um, at the time, I was uh, I guess I would be about fourteen, fifteen years old. Um, I worked in an ISP uh, way way up north. And the owner of the ISP bought one of these 3D uh, virtual reality uh, helmets. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was super cool. I remember he spent like, you know, 2000 bucks on this thing or whatever it was. Um, and I remember him bringing it to work. And the reason why I'm thinking of this is because the last time I saw, you know, head tracking uh, stuff was the, with, with this crazy VR headset, which I believe was called... Jeez, I wish I could remember the name. Um, the problem is I have Oculus VR stuck in my head right now. It's, it's obviously not from Oculus. It was, um, I'll just describe it. Um, it was this uh, helmet that um, it would kind of go over your head. And what it had was this flip-down kind of mask uh, that would go right over your face, like something you'd see out of a William Gibson cyberpunk uh, novel. Uh, and the mask would go over your eyes, kind of cover them over. And inside of it were... Uh, the best way I can describe it are um, binocular eyepieces that totally were stripped off of a pair of Bushnell binoculars. <laughs> and then behind that were these tiny, um, um, 
what would I call them? Um, CRT? Uh, no, CRT is the wrong word. Um, they were like an active matrix, I think a TFT, uh, an, ac- an active matrix um, non-LCD um, that would project directly on your eyes. So, and, and there was one for each eye. Um, the, the things were totally insane. The bad thing was, you know, because this is not LCD based, um, they're just blasting your eyes with, you know, um, 5,000 pixels of light. Um, <laughs> and the cool thing, but, but it, it was perfect. It gave you binocular vision. Um, and it really did feel very, very 3D. But the thing that reminded me of was um, the thing had a built-in accelerometer, and as soon as you turned your head, it would, you know, um, the game would pan to the left and to the right. And I remember seeing Doom uh, played played with this. You could turn your whole body, and Doom has no camera controls, but um, it would make your character turn, and I was just totally blown away by it. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to, to this, oh, shit, it's, Forte. Um, the company was Forte, I believe, and uh, something VR. I can't. Uh, I can't remember the name right now. Um, and you know the whole idea. So I saw people playing Doom on this, and it was like I said, ten bucks for ten minutes or something insane at the mall. Um, my boss got it, and I'll never forget this. I hooked up. Uh, <laughs> I hooked up this system. I waited until everyone was gone from work, and I snuck into my boss's office, and I grabbed this huge pile of you know. 3D equipment, brought it over to the workbench that I was working at, and I hooked it all up to the fastest machine we had at the time, which was a 46DX266. And um, I ran MechWarrior 2, which had support for this 3D headset. Um, and uh, I can. Are you a MechWarrior fan or player at all? Uh, somewhat, somewhat. MechWarrior 2 was yeah, for sure the, the coolest one. Yeah, exactly. That was the one that I kind of put all my time into. And um, for any of our viewers or listeners, I guess, um, if you haven't played MechWarrior 2, you're, you're running around these huge battle mechs from the, I think it's the, uh, what universe? It's not Battletech. It's, oh, I was going to say Battletech. I'm not I, sure. Close to. I'm not sure either. <laughs> Something like that. I, I think it's from the Battletech universe because it's like, you know, that, that whole idea of, you know, these warring clans in these massive uh, 100-foot-tall uh, mechanical suits. Um, the cool thing was... You could pivot on, you know, from your waist up in these battle tech, uh, in these battle mechs. So, for instance, if you wanted to turn your camera to the left, it would pivot the whole upper body of this mech, and you could shoot at stuff while your feet are running in the opposite direction. And um, I hooked up this very complex 3D uh, headset to it, and I just had the coolest feeling in the world where, you know, I, I told the mech to, you know, goose it, you know, towards the north, and I turned my head the whole upper body of the mech turned to the left and I could shoot, you know, bad guys running up beside me. And it was, uh, it was just like, I can't express to you how cool that experience was. And I can't wait to try that for something like Elite Dangerous. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm certain that I tried, if not that, then something very similar. Was that a carnival or something? I don't know if it was the Calgary Stampede or something. Um, right. Uh, it was one of those, you know, five bucks for five minutes kind of dealies. And all I can really remember is uh, having to take my glasses off and it being completely blurry. And I was still blown away and, like, ecstatic at whatever the heck kind of blurry, untextured polygons I had the great pleasure of uh, immersing myself within. <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, I I remember specifically that I could only wear – I had two problems. I could only wear the helmet for about five or ten minutes because um, it would give you, like, extraordinary neck pain. Um, I think the helmet weighed between, you know, four or five pounds. And, like, just that amount of pressure on your neck was enough to, to kill you. And the other thing was um, – 
I got massively sick from the weird binocular. I don't know if it was just too much light coming into my eyes or what, but I would get terrible, terrible like um, um, motion sickness from using this thing after just a few minutes. Hmm. Yeah, cool it stuff. Was, um, yeah, it was the Forte something something. Um, I remember, you know, looking on looking for it on eBay a couple of years ago, and I never did find a version of it. But yeah, anyway, super cool. Cool. So um, I. Uh, do you have any other games you've been playing, or do you want to move on to our main topic? Oh, I'm, I'm playing more games than, than I care to talk about, so why don't we uh, move it right <laughs> along? Okay, awesome. So, uh, yeah, the topic that uh, we've decided to uh, discuss today is one that's very near and dear to our hearts, I'm sure. It was quite formative in my uh, in my teenage years, and uh, something that was extremely exciting technology-wise and even socially was uh, modems and BBSing. So, uh for those who don't know, BBSing, that uh, BBS stands for a bulletin board system. And essentially, right. uh, essentially, this is, these are the days before the internet, um, like the 80s and the early to almost mid-90s. Mostly the early 90s was uh, the end of their heyday. Um, it, you might say that it was kind of akin to a, a website, but it was uh, something that you had to host or that someone had to host on their own personal computer with a phone line attached to their computer via a modem. And you would uh, have people dial in with their own modems on their own computers to uh, connect to that uh, computer uh, acting as a server. Uh, and you could interact with other people, not in real time usually, but uh, you could leave them messages on a message board. You could play games that were like asymmetric games where one person would play their turn and then you'd wait for a day or whatever and other people would play their turns and then everything would kind of step forward one step. Um, and uh, uh, once in a blue moon, if the uh, system operator or sysop, the owner of the BBS, was uh, present and sitting at their computer, uh, probably spying on everything that you were doing, key press by key press, because I believe it just shows that activity on the, the owner's computer, uh, they might uh, halt whatever you're doing and uh, engage you in a little real-time chat, which was a pretty exciting thing back in that day. Wow, I uh, I don't think I've ever heard a better explanation of what a BBS was. Oh, well, thank you. You're <laughs> I was, too kind. I was struggling for days to to express to somebody how special that experience was. Um, you know, the 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 thing I think most people don't realize with BBSs is, is that um, these were just regular everyday computers. They weren't, you know, um, there wasn't anything special about them. And at the time, in you know, in the 80s and 90s, computers weren't capable of multitasking. Um, so to set up a bulletin board system on your computer was like, you know, a full-time job. It meant that your computer is now unusable for playing games or doing word processing or anything. It's just sitting there waiting for connections over the phone line. And, um, you know, when somebody dialed in to connect to it, um, you'd be seeing live what that person was doing. So there's like kind of this, as a sysop, it was this very weird kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, like you're like a peeping Tom in a way, kind of seeing how a person's interacting with your bulletin board system software live in front of you. And, um, you know, from, from the player's perspective, or sorry, from the user's perspective, it was super cool for me to be like, wow, I can't believe I'm controlling somebody else's computer, which is like potentially, you know, dozens and dozens of kilometers away, um, remotely from my computer, and I'm seeing what's happening on my end, you know, as if, you know, it were my computer itself. Um, you know, it's, today we kind of think nothing of remote 
access or VNC or any of those kinds of things. But at the time, um, it just totally fucking blew my mind. Oh, for sure. And even to take it a step uh, back from here, I suppose, we should emphasize that, you know, before people really engaged in PBSs, you know, I was, uh, I guess it was 1991 or thereabouts when I was like, uh, 14 years old or so when I started dialing right. into these. Before then, our computers were really just disconnected machines that would only be exposed to whatever we kind of put into a disk drive. Otherwise, they were, exactly. you know, they, they, they didn't, they weren't aware of the world. They couldn't download anything. They would, you would have to go and purchase software or copy it from someone else or copy documents from somebody else and stick it into your computer via a floppy drive. So otherwise, you know, computer, one computer, the sentient beings that they are, are might not be aware that another computer even exists in the world. Exactly. It was like a totally solitary experience. Um, and in my case, I had a sister, a younger sister, who, who played games with me. And, you know, that was basically the only other time I would have somebody interacting with a computer with me is if I had my sister kind of flying left seat and kind of enjoying the uh, enjoying the view as I'm playing adventure games or whatever. Um, it It just kind of shocked me that there's this well, we didn't use that word server, but, you know, a bulletin board uh, system out there where potentially hundreds of people could connect to the same place. It was almost like the collect, you know, a collective watering hole or something um, where everyone could go to the same place for just a little while and uh, leave messages for each other and, you know, be in contact with other people who actually also cared about computers, which I just, I, again, I can't express to how important that was for me in the early 90s that, you know, I was living in a rural area at the time. Um, I don't, uh, to this day, I still don't know, but I'm pretty sure we had the only computer in 50 square kilometers. Um, I, I think that was literally the only computer that existed in the rural area I was in because all of my friends, all the people I knew who lived around me, they didn't know what a computer was and they also didn't care to find out. Um, so, you know, in you know, 1990, 91, um, when you know, I was first starting to do this uh, BBS stuff. Um, it just just slayed me that I could connect to other people and, and talk to other people who actually said, like, talked about games or talked about software. Yeah, well put, well put. I mean, I, although I went to uh, elementary school and then high school with um, several people who were into uh, computers and games and stuff like that, it was just kind of an eye-opener and just a, a means of expanding my world a little bit, you know, even just calling other uh, BBSs that are in Toronto, but learning how very many people there are that are interested in this technology and that had the technological wherewithal to figure out how to actually connect to one of these things and to talk the talk. And uh, they were people my age, uh, largely, as well, give or take about five years. So mostly give five years than take, because I was pretty young. But uh, that was a really exciting, like, monumental thing. It really was just a way of expanding expanding your world and learning what's out there. In a, in I think a, it's a great way fashion. of about it. Yeah, it's, uh, I also felt the same way. It was like my world had expanded very quickly, um, just because I was able to reach out over, you know, I didn't, I was too young to have a car or anything like that, so... You know, reaching out to other human beings over such huge distances was just, you know, mind-blowing, mind-expanding. And um, and I also like, too, you mentioned this earlier, that, um, you know, there were technological barriers to entry. So not just anyone could connect up with a modem. You needed to know how to configure COM port 2, and you needed to know how to... Um, this is when computers still had serial ports. Um, you need to know... Um, what BBS to connect to because it wasn't also easy even finding BBS numbers. Um, wh where the hell did you get a BBS list from? 
Um, well, where the hell did so, you get your BBS list from? I was just, one? okay, so that, that can launch me into my first story. It actually is my first BBS I ever connected to. Um, the, I got my first BBS list from my computer teacher in grade, I want to say grade 8 or grade 9. I want to say grade 9. And um, he basically said to me, he said, oh, does your computer have a modem? And I said, yeah, it's got a modem, but I don't really know what that's for. What, you know, what, what am I going to do with this thing? And he said, oh, well, you, need, you can connect to other computers. So he was a great guy. Um, what he did was he, he went um, online somewhere, I'm not sure how, some BBS um, local to us, and he downloaded this you know, 10 or 15-page BBS list that was local to my area code. Uh, at the time, and he gave it to me, and he just said, okay, we'll go through this list, find the ones that are uh, not long distance, because otherwise you're getting a lot of trouble from your parents, and try to connect to them. And, um, and you know, I, and sure enough, I, I found one, and I can't remember the name of it to, the, to this day. Um, I, I've confused my two first connection stories uh, a bit. I thought originally the first BBS I connected to was actually the school's BBS, um, but he didn't actually send that, set that up for me until a couple of weeks later. Um, the first DBS I ever connected to was something called the brown, I want to say it's the brown toadstool or the brown mushroom. Um, and because I didn't really know how modems worked, um, I used, you're going to have to correct my memory if I'm wrong here, did Windows 3.11, Windows for Work Groups, did it come with a terminal dialing software? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it did. Yeah, I thought so too. I think it had like a yellow modem symbol or something like that. Um, or uh, icon, I should say, in like the utilities folder or something. I'm quite um, sure you're right. Something term. Yeah, something term. Exactly. Like, or just like, exactly. Or just maybe just called terminal. I can't remember. Maybe. Um, I should have done my research, but I'm, I'm, I remember specifically having this white box pop up and my, computer teacher told me, here's the commands to dial in, like ATDT, and then put in the phone number, and I connected to this, yeah, this the brown mushroom or something, and it was very straightforward. It says, are you a new user? Yes, or hit uh, no to log in, and I put in all of my information, and I was just like, oh, I was actually getting kind of, I remember getting scared. Um, <laughs> I had like this feeling like, um, like starting to get cold sweats or something that I was doing something wrong um, because, you know, I was connecting to this person's computer, you know, somewhere else that I, you know, that I might not, should should not be or something. And then I got in and it gave me a welcome message and it says, welcome to, um, you know, the Brown uh, Toadstool BBS and you can talk to other people here. And it was really friendly. It was made, you know, definitely to be a first user experience. And uh, yeah, so that was my first connection story. How about you? So mine, uh, as I recall, I believe um, I had already uh, checked out a few BBSs uh, just uh, sitting uh, and watching over the shoulders of uh, friends. Um, gotcha. they, had a, they had a couple of BBSs for me to try out. Um, but in addition to that, we had a free computing newspaper here in Toronto. I think it was called The Computer Paper, actually, like a weekly Oh, one. I've, heard, I've heard of that, yeah. I think I've got the name right. I hope I'm not crossing my stories here, but... Um, uh, at the back of each of their issues, they had a list of local BBSs for Toronto that you can call. So I believe what I did was I tried some of the BBS numbers that uh, my friends had recommended, and they were busy, and I tried one or two out of the newspaper, and they were busy as well. Because, of course, because right. these are computers connected to a phone line, you could only have one person connected at any one time. If someone else was using it at the time, you would get a busy signal and have to try something right. else. You are basically shut out. 
So one that I did try that I connected to, of course, for my uh, IBM uh, MS-DOS PC was uh, an Apple computer uh, BBS. I think it might have been called something like the Apple Grove or something like that. Um, <laughs> and BBS has had the most fantastic names. Um, and so uh, I connected to the thing, and I don't know if it was the fact that I was struggling a little bit after, either after or while trying to set up, you know, it was my first uh, kick at the can. And so uh, the sysop uh, broke into chat with me, you know, my screen blanked out, and it uh, all of a sudden somebody was typing to me and just uh, told me, hello, and how am I doing, and is there anything you could help me with? So I was honest with the guy. I said, hello, this is my first experience. You know, this is, congratulations, this is the first BBS I ever connected to. And so the guy, the guy told me that uh, ordinarily uh, his is a, a private BBS that you need to pay a fee in order to access. But uh, to welcome me to the world of BBSing, he would kindly grant me a free membership to the site and he said that's that amazing which was very kind of him in in retrospect <laughs> and so i thanked him and i took a quick look around or so and then i uh logged off because you know as uh, we would do we would do whatever there was to be done on a bbs and then try to call the next one and do, do whatever we wanted on there to uh, talk to the people there or whatever log off and try the next one so i never ended up going back to that very nice guy's bbs but <laughs> it was such a memorable story i've never forgotten it so thank you that's that's Thank amazing you, stranger story. from my past, who gave me free access to your your your, your BBS with subject matter I don't care about. <laughs> Awfully nice guy. That that's incredible. You know that was one of the things that I loved about the BBS world, um, because it was so local. Um, I think there was something friendlier about it. There was the sense that you know you you were dealing with real human beings. You weren't just dealing with you know randoms messaging you anonymous people. Um, a lot of the time you're just realizing that hey you know what these are other people who you know, exist and they're not just, you know, a username or something. And they were really, really kind. My experience, for the most part, there were plenty of jerks. I mean, there were plenty of um, hacker, you know, dickhead types that I interacted with um, who thought they were, you know, the be-all and end-all uh, of the BBS. But for the most part, the people I dealt with were just really amazing, kind of generous people. I mean, my, this is, I guess, my second connection story, um, which was my computer teacher who was amazing to me. Um, the, the guy was just, you know, a huge inspiration for me. He, um, he, you know, I tried to connect all these BBSs, and I got on to a couple, but most of them were busy. And I came back and I said, hey, you know what, I connected to a bunch of these things. These, this is super cool. And he says, well, why don't I set up uh, BBS for the school, and you can connect to it. And, you know, at the time I never thought much of it, but I realize now, like, the, basically the only reason this guy was doing this is because he wanted to, you know, inspire me a little bit and let me have a little bit of fun. So... Uh, this is actually kind of funny. Um, he probably put in, you know, dozens of hours of work setting up this school BBS where, you you know, students could leave messages. Um, but unfortunately, uh, I don't know what the Toronto area is like, but in, you know, in the rural area I lived in, um, the uh, you were not local to your own area code. The area code covered the entire province, um, you know, in, in this case, Alberta, so it's 403. Um and the next three digits, I'm not sure what you call it, I guess the dialing prefix. Um, mm -hmm. There's got to be a technical word for that. I believe that's um, it. Yeah, um, that actually told you whether somebody was local or not. And it was really, really weird. So, for instance, in my little rural area, there were, you know, five square kilometers around me which were local. But if anything outside of that boundary was not local, so, for instance, the town I went to school in, uh, was not local to me, which is really crazy. Um, so I couldn't make uh, phone calls to it unless I paid long distance. So my poor teacher didn't know this, so I, 
you know, I dialed in once. Um, the whole, you know, the guy probably put in so much work to make this BBS thing run on these old ancient Macintoshes they had. And uh, I called in once, and I was just like, oh, well, you know, there's nothing to do. There's no file area. I can't use any of the Macintosh files because I'm on an IBM PC. Um, <laughs> there, you know, there's nothing to do. There's no other students on this, so I just disconnected after like 45 seconds. Oh, and, no. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I felt I felt terrible, and the guy, I, I remember feeling really guilty about it, because I'd go back to school, and he said, I saw you connected, you connected at like 8 o'clock last night, and I'm like, yeah, you know, you, you could see he was checking the server logs to see who connected to his machine, and I never once connected ever again after that, Aww. and yeah, uh, I felt guilty, it was about four or five weeks later, he disconnected the, uh, the Macintosh from the phone line, and just kind of let that, you know, let that puppy go to, go to, uh, go to heaven, so it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was really good though. He he definitely got me into the modeming world. Well, you were part of an exclusive club on that BBS, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm literally, other than him, I was the only user that ever connected to it. Um, I could be wrong, but um, I'm pretty sure that I remember that computer just like sitting in the corner of the computer classroom, patiently waiting for people to connect, and it always just had that one phone call, and that was it. Well, you got to hand it to a teacher that uh, goes to such lengths to encourage a, a student that wants to go above and beyond. So that's pretty cool. Oh, totally. That's oh, he was cool. amazing. And, uh, and, and you know, he was just, just you know, uh, not even a computer teacher. I think the guy was a social studies teacher, but he, he could totally see that I was this, you know, wannabe hacker type who wanted to be like um, David What's-His-Face in war games and just, you know, <laughs> try, 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 to, try to do what I could with a modem and feel like a badass. Oh, I gotta watch that movie again. I'm gonna watch that movie tonight. Um, oh, so good. It, I watched it a few months ago. Um, for anybody who hasn't seen War Games, it's this classic. Uh, I want to say 1981 or 82 movie. Thereabouts, sure. yeah, pretty close to yeah. early early times. Yeah, with uh, Matthew Broderick, and uh, and it's basically about him accidentally triggering this potential thermonuclear war situation over a modem, which is uh, a totally amazing. Um, and it, and the story. On, when's the last time you saw that movie? Probably five years ago or more. Yeah, I was I was really shocked that it actually the story holds up. There's something actually quite um, endearing about the way that these characters actually do really do worry that you know the Russians could come and uh, you know nuclear strike uh, the United States, etc. And it, it it played well. And I honestly the only reason I was watching it was because I I got you know kind of like nerd truly watching uh, Matthew Broderick hack with this MSI, uh, <laughs> old MSI computer, which actually does have a modem, which actually does have a massive 8-inch disk drive, which just blows my mind to this day. Mm -hmm. And was that, <laughs> as I recall, I kind of have in my mind's eye this picture of him, like, affixing cups to the receiver of his telephone? That's exactly it. It had an acoustic coupler modem. That's right. That's what it's called. Oh, that's such a cool name, too. Well, this is a good lead-in, perhaps, to us uh, discussing the hardware that we use to connect to these BBSs. What was the, the first modem that you owned? <laughs> uh, um, uh, I don't know. I just, feel like, I just got, like, chills thinking about how excited I was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, okay, so I'll try to make a long story short, since i got way too many stories in my head. Um, my parents went to... Uh, this this chain called Future Shop, and they were buying a new computer. They were upgrading us from a 286 Amstrad, which was I, I thought it was a good computer at the time, but it was totally like three generations behind. Mm. Um, you know, this was a 1994 or 93 or something around there. We were going from an Amstrad. Oh, am I screwing up my stories? No, we were going from an Amstrad 
to a real true blue IBM PS1. Um, and the IBM PS1, I didn't know it at the time, came with a uh, 2400 baud modem stuck in the ISA port at the back, at the ISA ports. And it was, we had the computer for several months. And I went and uh, this is the problem. I always get my dates screwed up in my head, but it, early 90s, whenever it was. Um, I went to the back to install um, a new card, and I saw this. I saw there was a Sound Blaster. It was a Sound Blaster 16 ISA. And beside it, I was like, "What the hell is that thing?" I'm like, and I couldn't figure it out. It had no, it had no obvious, um, uh, it had no obvious description on it, and it just said. I have a little sticker that says approved by Canadian Standards Association Canada Telecommunications. Ooh. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I saw in the back there were two ports, um, you know, one for a little telephone jack line in, telephone jack line out. And that's when I went to my computer teacher and asked him, he says, oh, that's a modem. Well, it's really obvious. You know, you just stick a phone line in, you can call other computers. And yeah, and I found out it was a 2400 baud modem when I connected to that first BBS and it said connect 2400. <laughs> and it was a it was a generic piece of crap, um, you know, rip off of a haze compatible modem made by nobody. <laughs> they were all haze compatible, weren't they? Or am I remembering wrong? That's right, exactly. Yeah, they were all based on the haze modem standard, which was kind of a protocol I think for handshaking or basically making a connection between two modems. Mhm. What about you? So um, I was already familiar with what modems were thanks to my uh, elementary school friends. Um, and so I knew what I was asking for uh, when I uh, begged my parents to buy me one. I can't, I think they must oh, have been about a nice. hundred bucks or so. So I, if I'm not remembering wrong, I think it was in fact a Hayes brand external 2400 baud modem. And uh, Oh, beautiful. I guess to give some context for this, um, Let's say nowadays, you know, we, we're going to upgrade our, our internet service pretty soon to 60 megabits per second, which I think <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in the ballpark of like six megabytes every second that you can download. Whereas, yeah, ballpark, yeah. Okay, whereas a 2400 baud modem, that's something like uh, 2400 bits per second. Right. That uh, works out to like a third of a kilobyte per second, which is like an hour okay. to download one megabyte. An hour to download I'm a so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy you did the exact same math as me. I went over that math three times. <laughs> me too. Oh, I was, man. I was like, I, there's no way that's 0.3 kilobytes a second. Yeah, it's insanely slow. That's exactly the process I went through. That's too funny. So, like, uh, it's, if you wanted to download, you know, the I don't know, if you wanted to download a, a, a an image, it might literally take you an hour or something to, to get it. And that's assuming, yeah. of course, that uh, mom didn't pick up the telephone because these devices, you know, they did their very noisy handshaking thing. Why don't I insert a sound of uh, modem handshaking right about here? Um, right. melodious sound that I miss very much. Um, and after the handshaking thing, basically it just sounded like fuzzy static, uh, which was indiscernible right. to the human ear, but, uh, it's very particular, uh, series of, uh, of, uh, signals for computers to interpret and translate from, uh, audio into digital, uh, c uh, commands and communications. And so if you pick up the phone, that's pretty much game over. If somebody picks up the phone, it's going to hang you up unless they hang up really, really 
quickly after hearing your horrible noises. Usually the way it worked exactly. was that someone would pick it up and then yell at you to stop monopolizing the, the phone line if you're upgrading, bringing the similar to mind. So, um, yeah, it's funny. And I remember that, um, the early modems, especially like the 2400 baud, the 9600 baud, I think even as far as 14.4, they were really, really, really sensitive to people. Any sort of distortion on the phone line, um, they just couldn't handle it. They didn't have what would later be called uh, error correction. Mm-hmm. And um, the so basically, it treated any amount of noise as saying, I don't understand what you're saying to me. I'm just going to disconnect. And um, the uh, when I got a later modems, we can get into that a bit later on, um, the past the 14.4 era, they developed some pretty complex error correcting schemes, which were really, really cool because it meant that, you know, if my sister or my parents picked up the phone, um, I could just kind of yell like, no, I'm on the phone. And it would take five seconds, but it would reconnect and resume the download without like a massive interruption. Oh, and a big sigh um, of relief from you, of course. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I, uh, I, I remember the, the worst was, um, you know, it would take you an hour to get, did we say about an, an hour a mag, more or less? Yeah, hard to believe, isn't it? But that's that's the math I came up with. Uh, that's painful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, an hour and a mag, if, you know, if everything is perfect. Um, I don't know about Toronto, but in the rural area I, I was in, uh, this, you might get a kick out of this. Um, the... Phone lines we used in the rural area, keep in mind, like, this is just acreages and farms, everything around us. People didn't use the phone for much in those days. They would just drive to a neighbor's house or, you know, they would go for coffee. So what they did was, to save money, instead of having private phone lines to each home, they would have things called party lines. Oh, and that yeah, meant yeah. You had, yeah, you had two to three other people sharing a phone line. Um, so you can imagine the problem where, you know, if your mom or, you know, your sister or your brother picks up the phone, that's going to just distort your connection, uh, destroy your connection. It was way worse for me because I had to compete now with three other families who might do the same thing. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so the worst, I, I remember just like almost being in tears. I would, I would actually get these heart pal- palpitations near the end of a download because um, <laughs> if I was downloading one meg game, if somebody picked up the phone line at the end of your download, you're like 96%, you know, like one minute away. Um, that would actually corrupt your entire download and you have to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I, I can't explain to anybody. Like I would, I would actually like get into like these sweat sweats, like, you know, one minute before the download's done and have this huge sigh of relief when the whole thing was down, downloaded and there was no uh, kind of um, CRC error in the zip file. Oh, no kidding. You, you ever play Sonic the Hedgehog? Yes, it did. Oh, so I, I had very similar experiences. In Sonic the Hedgehog, there's these, you know, beloved water levels. And when yep. Sonic starts to run out of air, it does the oh, most, oh, yep. the most, like, <laughs> terrible music that, like, it's faster and faster and faster. And, like, you think your heart's yep. going to explode. And then if you're, <laughs> if you're lucky enough to just grab an air bubble or something, then it just goes away. That, so that's, that's kind right. of what I'm picturing with you and your comments. <laughs> oh, I know exactly the level you're talking about. He's floating around in this bubble that that's running out of air and he goes, dude, yeah, and it's, it's just so scary. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I that was exactly the experience of, of downloading so what I tended to do was go for smaller files because there was like a way less of a risk that they would get corrupted over the download and sometimes you know the other thing that would happen um, this is something very nerdy for the tech heads out there um, the 2400 baud modem actually all of the modems um, except probably the very early ones 
would renegotiate on the fly to slower and slower speeds if the um, the phone connection degraded. So you may have connected at 2400 baud, but in my case, because the phone lines were so shitty out on the farms, um, I would get lucky at a 2400 connection, and little beknownst to me, it would actually be dropping down to 900, 600, 300 baud over the you know over the course of my connection. So I might be getting like. 0.05 kilobytes a second, and I would have no idea. Mm. And, oh, uh, so get, I guess to get some context horrible. around that too, like um, you might think today, if you go view a text uh, text file in your web browser, um, and then you like press the F5 button to refresh your browser, it just appears there, just like that. But yeah, even when you're connected to 2400 baud, uh, you could you could see the characters kind of popping in one after the other, like you're using a, <laughs> a teletype or something. Or, it felt like something out of the Civil War, almost, in retrospect. Yeah, exactly. It, it's funny. I remember that, specifically, um, um, one thing, I guess we can talk about that a bit later, but um, the modem, the way it works is, it's just accepting raw data coming in over the phone line. So it update, it paints the screen, like, line by line. And you can actually, on a 2400 baud, you can actually count it, you know, the screen's popping up in front of you, unlike a web page, which it just, like, yeah, instantly loads the entire page, you know, and you've just got it. This would, you know, spit at you one character at a time, like you were saying. And I remember being, like, you know, so frustrated waiting for, you know, these BBSs that had these complex title pages, which were, like, a thousand lines of ANSI or ASCII. Um, I'd be like, come on, hurry up, just just get to the main menu. I want to get to the main menu, and it would take, like, three minutes. Yeah, that's right, although... I guess this is a, a bit of a lead-in, or at least a reference to something that, well, if we don't talk about today, we can talk about in the future. But uh, these BBSs, you know, they were pre- predominantly text mode, where it would kind of give you a menu of options, and you would press, like, G for games, or M for the message boards, or E for your, your private right. email or something. Um, but in addition to this text, uh, there was something called ANSI Art, A-N-S-I. I think that's, like, the American yeah. National Standards Institute. Um, right. which was, they're the ones who, uh, defined this protocol and they were basically like pixel art, but not so much pixel art because the shape of each individual like cell of, uh, of, uh, drawing was, uh, rectangular. It was like twice as tall okay. as it was high or thereabouts. Um, but this, uh, encouraged a whole, uh, a whole scene and a whole means of creating art, uh, in this style, like super big, full, full screen pixelated art. And, um, people would decorate their BBSs with these. And so a lot of people, a lot of the uh, BBS uh, NC artists would design uh, a picture that was several screens tall. And the only way that you could really appreciate it was to watch it loading in <laughs> gradually line by line. And that was uh, an art form that kind of got less and less valuable over time as modems got faster because they started scrolling so fast that you couldn't really appreciate the details or sometimes even see what you were looking at till it got to the end and paused. That's exactly it. I, I I remember specifically. I went through a big jump hardware wise. I went from twenty four hundred baud to fourteen four. Um, for that's one thousand. Sorry, ten thousand four hundred. Ten thousand four thousand four hundred uh, baud, which is you know a huge jump. I think that's over ten times, or actually just under ten times. So five or six times an increase in speed. Yeah, me too. Um, that was my. So you went to fourteen four too. Yeah, that's right. Oh, nice. I went to, um, I, I've got a little story. I want to, I've always wanted to thank my mom for this. Um, I'll never forget it. Um, it was about, I want to say it was a few months later, six months, eight months later, 
I had been tying up the phone line like crazy with this 2400 baud because it was so bloody slow. Even I knew, even I knew 2400 baud was slow when I was a kid. Um, and I was so used to my computer games, which would like load instantly. And um, my mom went to the university. And at the time, she was, you know, kind of balancing classes and two kids and all of this stuff. And she came home. It was, it was um, February 14th, Valentine's Day. And she came home with this, like, pink Valentine's um, gift bag for me. And uh, it, was, it was just, like, the sweetest, kindest thing. I almost got tears in my eyes thinking of this. Um, she said, I've got something for you for Valentine's Day. And I was just like, oh, she probably got me, like, you know, uh, Cadbury Easter cream egg and that kind of stuff and, like, those crappy, horrible chocolate Easter bunnies that are, like, inedible because they're half wax. Um, and my mom had came home with this pink box and, and she said, open it up. She, no, she gave me, sorry, she gave me a manila envelope first and I pulled it out and it was for the local university. I was like, what the hell is this? And it says how to use the general purpose Unix uh, computer server system. And I was just like, I don't even know what that means. You know, I was 14, I think, at the time. I, I didn't even understand what that means. She goes, you'll need, it. You'll need that manual. Just hang on to it. And I said, okay. And I got, I got super excited because I knew it was computer stuff. And then she said, open this other box. And it was this pink box. I'll never forget what it looked like. And it was a U.S. Robotics Sportster 14.4 modem inside. Um, <laughs> She must have blown two or three hundred bucks. It was a lot of money, you know, a huge amount of money in the early 90s. And I just about passed out. I was just like, <laughs> I was just totally in love at that point. So I just ripped this thing open, ran over to the computer, jammed it into an ISA slot, and um, tried to reconnect to all my favorite BBSs, which at this point had already upgraded way past 14.4. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, man, I, I, I'll never forget the experience of jumping from 2400 baud to 14.4. I was just like, this is... It was like the screen would update almost instantaneously, and um, file. I could, and you know, we can talk about this in a little bit. But that was basically the beginning of piracy, sure. uh, the, the poss- possibility of pirating games because you could finally get files. You know, fourteen four. You could probably get a one meg file in about twenty minutes. I didn't do the calculation for that one. It's about half that actually. It was about nine and a half minutes, nine and two thirds minutes. Wow! Wow, that's amazing. So that's instead of an hour, it's like a world of difference. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Um, what about you? What was your your first upgrade? Was it to a fourteen four two? Yeah, that's right. And I'm gonna, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm gonna say the name of this product again because this is probably the best product name of anything ever. It is the U.S. Robotics Sportster. Like, how oh, cool of a beautiful. name is that? It sounds like some kind of a robot you're buying, doesn't it? It's like some kind of personal <laughs> butler assistant. <laughs> that is a cool, that's a cool name. U.S. Robotics is the company, and the Sportster was the name of their line of modem. So it was also a 14.4 kilobaud modem. So that, kilobaud, yes, that's the word I was thinking of, kilobaud. So that, that was, that's, it made a world of difference. And yeah, that we were, funny we were lucky it, to be able to measure in kilobaud because the 2400 baud is like a quarter of a kilobaud. Exactly, and it's funny that it conjured up an image for you because for me, of a robot, because the image for me was I imagined the Sportster to be like this kind of slick red convertible car. I just like no kidding. You know, my parents just give me license to drive. No kidding. Oh, I just caught myself by the way. Twenty four hundred baud would be two point four kilobaud. So oh man, that's, that's about one sixth the speed. Painful so, and uh, good to those days. 
And, and uh, with the uh, fourteen four, the fourteen point four modems, uh, not only do they bring that faster speed, but they also brought in a new protocol that was known as V.32 Biz, which meant that they were able to uh, communicate in full duplex. So the twenty four hundred baud modems right. they could upload or they could download, but not at the same time. Whereas the fourteen four modems right. could upload and download at the same time. And part of downloading is you know, to download a file, you also have to intermittently upload a small message that says, yes, I received this, and yes, it is correct. And so just That's getting right. rid of that one little aspect uh, it sped things up on its own, never mind the fact that it was uh, many times faster than its predecessors. That's crazy. I didn't realize that V32Biz came with um, with with the upgrade to the Sportster. I, I remember it specifically at that time, um, for, for those wondering, um, or if you're not wondering, um, when you downloaded something, it, it wasn't actually straightforward on how the hell do you download a file. I mean, how do you actually send, you know, text stuff over the phone lines, and then how do you interrupt that process and say, okay, I'm not sending you text anymore. I'm sending you a binary file, which is a completely different format. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need a protocol. Um, everyone who uses the internet now is used to TCP/IP. Um, or TCP slash IP, which are actually, I believe, two different protocols that are kind of jammed into one. Yeah, that's uh, right. Transmission. Transmission control protocol and the internet protocol. That's right. Exactly, yeah. And those those kind of handle everything you need to do in terms of being on the internet, downloading files, talking over, you know, voice, etc. The idea of voice over IP, VoIP, is also based on the internet. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, though, it wasn't really clear on how the hell do you switch between binary and text mode uh, on the fly, so people had to code custom protocols, and there were dozens of these things. Well, at least a dozen of them. Um, the V32Biz was a hardware protocol that would just allow you to do the full duplex connections, meaning upload and download at the same time, um, which I'm, yeah, really glad you brought that up because I did not know that. Um, so you had the hardware support for it. The trick was you needed also software support to do that. Um, did you happen to use any of the BBSs that allowed you to upload and download at the same time? Uh, well, um, I don't remember whether it, I don't remember whether it was a matter of the BBS supporting it or whether it was well, it was the software whether they had a protocol that enabled that's that. That's right, right? Exactly, so, that was it. You needed a protocol. Yeah, so I didn't. I did indeed, and you were the one who reminded me uh, a few months ago. The name of the, one of those protocols was HS Link, which allowed HS Link. It was a cool protocol. Like usually, you know, you press download on your file and you sit there and you're lucky if you get a progress bar that so telling you how much <laughs> you have, you've done and how much is left to go. Exactly. Um, with HS Link, it gave you this awesome full screen interface that allowed you to download a file and simultaneously upload a file to the BBS because that's where BBS has got their files was from the users and sometimes that's right. uh, users would get credit or some kind of recognition for having uploaded a file um, but not only could you do those but you could also chat with the sysop the system operator of the BBS oh, right. at the exact same time Pardon? that all this was going on uploading and downloading a file which is just unheard of for one very simple phone line to do all three things at once that's right. I, I completely forgot that it supported Sysop chat. Oh, so I had many conversations, you know, uploading and downloading, no doubt some illicit file that I oughtn't have been uh, trading, but uh, speaking and talking shop with uh, a, a fellow uh, nerd comrade on the other end. Oh, definitely. And I think Sysops really, they loved it. I when, when, you know, you had a user nerdy enough to download the HS link protocol, there were a few of them. I want to say there was one called Ice Modem, too, but I could be wrong. Um, Sounds familiar. There was, there were, 
Yeah, there was a few of them. And basically, you know, to, to make, to help make this clear, um, the, you know, the first protocol I ever saw in my whole life was called, um, Xmodem. And Xmodem was a basic, uh, protocol that would just allow you to upload and download files. You couldn't do them simultaneously. You could just do one at a time. And I'm pretty sure Xmodem didn't even have a progress indicator to tell you how much of the file is downloaded. You just basically sit there and pray um, that at some point it'll just say download complete or file, you know, file transfer complete, and that was that. Yeah, that's my recollection um, as well. Yeah, and then I think at some point um, Y and Z modem came out as kind of upgrades on X modem, and they added some additional features. I don't remember. I think you know what. Um, I remember exactly what Zed Modem added, which was batch transfers. Um, oh, yeah. You could queue up three or four files. Yeah, that was super cool because you – I always had this problem. Um, I'm not sure how this worked for you and your family dynamics, but I had this problem where my parents were fucking sick of me being on the computer all day, and uh, <laughs> I would – you know, I'd come home from school – uh, get off the bus, run to the house, jump on the computer, and I'd be there for the rest of the day, and I would be there all night if I could. So it would take me off at some point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, and I was, you know, go out and play, get outside, you know, go see your friends. But I, you know, I, once I got onto the modem scene, um, I wanted to be online all the time. So there was an agreement at our house that I think it was after 9.30 or 10 o'clock, I was allowed to use the phone line because we only had one. And, you know, I mentioned before, we only we had a bunch of neighbors that all shared the same line, so I had to be respectful of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would happen to me was I would get on the computer and I'd say, um, you know, start downloading this file. Well, the file took an hour or two hours to download, and that would mean that, you know, the download would complete around 1 a.m., and after 1 a.m., I'd lose my connection to the BBS and I'd be in bed, so I couldn't sit there to hover over it and start a new download when the file came. Uh, through. So Zed Modem, I believe, added batch transfers, which meant I could queue up like three or four downloads in a row and just say, when you're done that one, move on to this one. And oh man, you have no idea how excited I was um, because I could get like an entire game overnight if I just let the damn thing stay connected to the BBS until like 6 a.m. Oh, I have some idea, believe me. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. I had forgotten about the batch transfer thing uh, as well. I I do remember the delta between X modem and Z Z modem. Let's call it Z modem because that's the right way as as my fellow Canadian, right? I'm sure we're the only ones who would bother (laughs) calling it that. Um, There was also Y modem, and I don't remember whatsoever what the difference was between the two. I guess by the time by the time I could do yeah, uh, I don't know. By the time I I knew what Z modem was, Y modem was already uh, uh, superseded. But uh, yeah, as exactly. I recall, Z modem. I'm alternating now. <laughs> and as I recall, Z modem. Um, it also had. It would also allow you to do error correction and resume a file. Oh, that's right. It has resume, which is crazy. Which is a world of difference. Thank goodness for resuming. Otherwise, you'd have to start again from scratch if you'd been downloading for an hour or two. Yeah, and I. I oh man, like getting the ability to have you know you resuming a file after an interrupted transfer was crazy because. Um, that, like I said, I, I was on such a terrible phone line most of the time. I would say 60% of my transfers would, would crap out and raise in the middle, and they would disconnect me from the BBS completely. Um, and, you know, pr- most likely because my neighbors were picking up the phone. Um, oh, man, when I was able to resume downloads, it was just like the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. And uh, that's cool. And, you know, in terms of thinking today, um, ironically, most 
web browsers don't even really support proper resuming. Um, I think Chrome does now. Um, and I'm not sure about Firefox. It's been a long, long time since I used Firefox. But I think about like Mac Safari. It still does not actually support proper uh, file resuming. And that has something, I'm sure, to do with the fact that the protocols for TCP IP are not exactly geared towards that. I might be mistaken about this, but I think it might be dependent on the web server that the oh. website is using and not so much on oh. the web browser. Okay. I think... I think that Apache supports it and Internet Information Systems, IIS, didn't for right. a long time, and now it does. Maybe I'm getting my servers mixed up or something. Okay, that, you know what? You're, I think you're 100% right, because I remember when I used to build Apache servers on Linux boxes, that was an option in the Apache configuration file. Ah, there you go. There you go. So it might have been something that they tacked on after a while to the Apache web server. But yeah, I, I do remember, seem to recall some yeah. some uh, websites having files I could resume, but around the same era or on the same day, some some uh, sites did not have that feature. Yeah, that's really funny because even now, um, um, you know, I was watching my um, my partner download a massive file, and she got about you know 550 megs into it, and it crapped out. So I said, "Oh, just hit the resume button," and the resume button just restarted the whole download. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> That's crazy. Cool. Yeah. So, how are we doing here? We are at about an hour and 20 minutes or so here, and I sort of feel like we've, we've scratched the surface and a little more. There's, like, um, so much that I can very yeah. enthusiastically say on this topic, and I'm wondering whether perhaps we ought to cap it here and uh, resume uh, next time. Yeah, that sounds fine to me, man. I'm, I'm up for either one. Okay, awesome. Well, why don't we go ahead and do that then? Um, sure. While uh, while you've been talking here, as in fact at this very moment right now, I am signing us up for a Twitter account here, so that our our beloved listeners, assuming we've got one, um, <laughs> can uh, follow us. So, oh my god, let me see here. There we go. You can contact us at Square Waves FM on Twitter. Um, That's so badass that you managed to get that Twitter handle. Yeah, yeah, well, I should have done it at the beginning uh, in advance of this, but uh, I just squeaked <laughs> it in. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Square Waves FM on Twitter. Or if you would like to uh, access our blog where we'll be, be posting the uh, 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 the uh, episodes every week, uh, you can find us at squarefm.demodulated.com. And how's that for a proof of uh, how deeply uh, modems have affected, be, uh, affected me, that my domain is demodulated.com, because, of course, the modem modulates and demodulates, and that is where it gets its name. Yeah, that's pretty hardcore nerdy, man. I know, isn't it? <laughs> I try, I try. All right. Well, boy, this has been a true pleasure and a long time coming, I feel. So thanks a million, Chris, for joining me today. Oh, that's fantastic, Brian. I can't wait to work on our next episode where we'll hopefully talk about um, stuff related to the ANSI art scene, FidoNet, uh, BBS software, the actual server software people used, uh, game piracy, software piracy, because that was a big, big, big part of the um, of the modeming world, mm -hmm. and uh, my favorite topic, BBS store games. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mod music as well. Boy, we got to, we, we could oh, do yeah, yeah, a yeah. podcast of this, couldn't we? I can't wait. I can't and, wait as uh, well. Yeah, in future episodes, we can kind of figure out, yeah, where we're going to go from here, but I suspect we're going to have plenty to talk about, especially in relation to old games, which we haven't even had the chance to even broach yet. Sure. Well, wouldn't have it any other way. I look forward to it. Okay. Right, can't so. wait to talk to you soon, man. Yeah, you bet.